Father in heaven, uh, thank you for this hour. Thank you for every person you brought into this room for this time. I, I know it's no accident for the exact people that are here, Father, that you knew they would come. You probably even prompted them to come, to get out of bed and to be here today. I know you have something for every single one of us. You have truth and insight and wisdom and your presence and in some cases comfort in other places challenge and other places encouragement. You have exactly the right thing for each person here. So I pray that you will give me your words and give me your heart for those words. And I pray you'll give each of us then open hearts and open minds to hear those words and to respond with worship and obedience. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My subject is on joy. So I, I asked Marie about midweek if she could tell me some people in our lives that that are ones that have expressed joy so much. And instantly she mentioned her great aunt Annie, who's now been in heaven for a few years. But, but I got this picture in my mind of the few years that I knew, knew this great aunt Annie. I probably met her when she was 70 or north of 70 at some stage. But she was the one that that uh, was invited to every gathering, every barbecue, every party. And she was the one that it seemed like perpetually, every single time she was there, she exuded joy. There was something about her spirit and her attitude and her words that just bubbled out joy. And what made it even more um, noticeable and more effective and more powerful was her life circumstances. She had married young and her first husband had died young. And then she had been a widow for, I think, a couple of decades and then fell in love again, married again, and had a nice marriage, but he had also died, and so she'd been widowed again a second time for a long, long time because of when she was widowed and when she was married, there were no children, therefore no grandchildren. She missed all of that. She was missing so many of the 20th century back then, 20th century conveniences that we all had come to to expect. She lived in this very small frame house at the very top of this hill outside of Shiner, Texas, And the wind in the wintertime could blow so hard and so cold. And she lived her entire life without a hot water heater. Her entire life. This was up into the 80s or maybe even up to 1990 without that. And so with all of those circumstances, she's the one that you always wanted to invite. There was this attractiveness about her as a person. There was this magnetism about her. And it was spelled J-O-Y. It was spelled joy. And every single one of us in this room... We love being around people with genuine joy. And every single one of us wants to be someone who experiences more and more joy. So I'm going to teach about that. When I um, entered seminary back um, two and a half decades ago, I was assigned Psalm uh, 45 to study in detail. I know I'd read it multiple times before, but there was something that jumped out at me that caught me off guard, something that I didn't expect and something I even had to wrestle with to see if, if I understood what it really was saying as true. In Psalm 45, verse 7, it's speaking of Jesus, and it says, you love justice and hate evil. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. It says, God the Father has anointed Jesus, who's God the Son, with the oil of joy more than anybody else. I, I stopped and I looked at that and I, I was understanding, it was saying of, of all beings that have ever existed, Jesus is the one who has had and will always have more joy than anybody. And then later on, I would recognize the very same thing in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. In fact, it quotes Psalm 45, 7, you love justice and you hate evil. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. 
And when I read that and studied it, I had been a follower of Jesus for seven plus years by that time, and I had read scripture a lot. I thought I knew all about Jesus, and somehow I had studied the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it had fully escaped me that Jesus was the most joy-filled being ever. It fully had escaped me that if I put Jesus and great aunt Annie in a room, I might not even recognize that great aunt Annie had joy because his would so surpass everybody else that the entire room would be captivated by his joy. That had fully escaped me. And so I read the gospels all over again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looking for that. And and I didn't find a lot of verses, but I found some deep substance verifying that. One verse I found was Luke 10, 21. It says, at that time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he said, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. So the setting is that that, uh, he is trained and developed his disciples about halfway through the training period and sent them out. And they've come back and they've said, when we went out and we told people about you, and, and about you being the Messiah who has now come, we found people that uh, did experience deep freedoms that they'd never known before. I mean, freedom from illness and sickness and sin and brokenness and on and on and on. And so they've just come back and told Jesus, and Jesus, more than anyone on the planet, is aware that, that since, since Adam and Eve's sin, until that time, the entire world had been yearning for someone to come finally restore people and fix things. And Jesus knows this is the leading edge of that. He understands that this is just the beginning. This is just the trickle effect of what will become a flood of lives for the first time in all of human history, having the chance to be deeply and fully restored by him. And and it says in that time, he's filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And and then, and that wasn't, that didn't do enough to convince me. Well, let me back up. I, I understand all scripture is fact. It's true. And so I, I understood what Psalm 45 said, what Hebrews 1 said is true. I mean, Jesus has more joy than anyone ever. But I found in the Gospels, I found this evidence, and I want you to track with me in the thought process. In, in John 15, 11, it's the very last night before Jesus' crucifixion. And he knows what's coming. It, he's talking to his closest followers. He says, I have told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. They've been with him virtually day and night for three years now. They have observed him. They've seen his entire world. They've seen his entire emotional world. And he's saying to them, he said, I've told you all this stuff I've just said in the previous verses, so so you can have my joy. When you do, you'll overflow. Now, let me ask you this. If they hadn't experienced three years of overflowing joy, don't you think he would have had to say, hey, guys, um, let me tell you something. You haven't observed it because I'm not a very expressive guy, but the last three years, I've been full of joy. I just didn't let you see it. But inside, trust me, guys, I know it hasn't shown on my face or my actions or my words, but inside, I've been full of joy. And, and so just trust me, and I want you to have my joy. I, I, I don't think so. I, I think when he said it, they were reflecting back on three years, and they said, man, we've been watching for three years. Talk about magnetism. We've been watching. We've been yearning. We can't be around you. you know, we can't get enough of you. We want what you have. And so he's saying to them, he's saying, you've watched all this, and, and I want to give you my joy. And, and if you get it, it will be so much you can't contain it. 
it will fill you up and it will overflow. It will spill out. It will, it will seep out of the pores of your skin. And, and it would be incredible because they had watched him. They had seen him. So while Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't pick up all these illustrations that said we knew he was full of joy, um, it, intuitively you have to understand that's what they had observed for three years. So he says this and they go, of course. Man, are you kidding? We can have it too? Like we can get your joy too. Dana taught last week, did a great job talking about Jesus always being present. And he taught that Jesus is always present for everyone, but most especially and most intimately for those that are followers of Jesus. There's this, there's this personal int- intimate connection always. He's always present. Now think about that teaching, the reality of that, that Jesus is always there with the realization he's the most joy-filled being ever. We talk about attractiveness, talk about magnetism, and knowing that's the one that's always there that has more joy than you or I've ever seen before. That's the one. But it's important to understand, though, that joy isn't the only emotion that Jesus has experienced. There are passages that talk clearly about him experiencing sadness and compassion and anger and anguish. Jesus had this fully orbed emotional life. He didn't have this single dimension of just simply joy. And in a moment, I'll unpack why, that's, why it's so essential that he had this, this fully orbed emotional life. I'll unpack the significance of that. There's this um, great treatise on human psychology. There's multiple volumes in this treatise, and it's, it's uh, very renowned. It's widely read by people. In fact, I'm quite confident that at least half of you here have read this great treatise. And you've probably even watched videos of it. The name of the treatise is Winnie the Pooh. So I want to give you some of the human psychology out of Winnie the Pooh. I've got a couple of pictures to show you about a couple of the the characters of Winnie the Pooh. One is a picture of this donkey who's named Eeyore. Okay, if you're familiar with Winnie the Pooh, you, you understand that Eeyore has this perpetual, I would even say clinical depression. Uh... Every single thing is woe me. If you look at, at Eeyore, if you hear Eeyore, you understand the entire world has, you know, has, is in shreds now. And if you could take the most powerful microscope and look at every fiber of Eeyore's being, you would never find a trace of joy in him. And if you're a parent, you've been exposed to Eeyore, and you, you already know you can only take so much Eeyore. That is difficult, difficult presence. I mean, someone that is completely void of joy is very, very difficult to be around. But there's this second character named Tigger. And first glance at Tigger, he's bouncing and laughing and jumping. And the first, the first exposure, you think, well, this one's full of joy. But then you realize that, that he's always like this, independent of all circumstances, now, if you, would, you would hope, you would expect he would be just like this in this celebration mode if he'd come to your wedding. And that's an, an appropriate expression of emotion, right? Or maybe at the birth of your baby, this is the appropriate expression of emotion. Or maybe if you've just got a college scholarship, you want him there, Tigger, to be doing this. If you've just won district championship, you want, this is what you would expect. But if you've just been hit by a truck, and you're in the middle of the road, and you have two broken legs... This is what you get. He doesn't change. He is oblivious to all circumstances around him. 
He is oblivious to your life and your circumstances. He's not capable of anything but this, this insane, this insane, uh, detached from reality joy. And if you've read the book, so much of it is, you can only be around Tigger so long. The, the beauty of, of Christ is, is this, is, is that he would hold this joy at the same time respond to the reality of your life in my life and respond with the emotions appropriate to the reality of your life. Now, let me give you something that's important to understand. Healthy emotions are those responding to the whole truth. Healthy emotions are those responding to the whole truth, not just a piece of the truth, not just Tigger, like somewhere I'm going to bounce in joy and laugh and all that, but healthy emotions are those responding to the whole truth. And you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and you see him fully responding to the full truth in the Gospels. So there's a place where he shows sadness. Luke 19, verses 41 42 are one example of that. And the setting is he's gone uh, through his three years of ministry. He's come to Jerusalem for the last time. He knows within a week he'll be crucified in Jerusalem by Jerusalem. And he begins to weep in deep sadness because he understands that, that while he'll come and he will die for the sins of humanity, he understands many of the very people of Jerusalem that kill him, they will never repent of their sins. They'll never turn to him. And, and they'll miss the life they could have had and they'll miss heaven and find hell instead. And the, that's reality and the appropriate response to that is deep sadness. And you see, Jesus the one more joyful than any being ever, you see him experience deep sadness at that time. You see him experience at different time compassion for people. Matthew 9, 36 is one of those places. He's gone village to village in the midst of his ministry time in those three years. And he meets crowd after crowd. And he says, they're like sheep that don't have a shepherd. He says, they, they don't know where to turn. They don't know where to find water or food. They don't know where to find shelter. They're so lost and their lives are so ravaged because they just need a shepherd. And it says he felt the emotion of deep compassion for them, responding to their reality. There are times that he experienced anger. Mark 3, verse 5 is one of those. The setting was, it was a Sabbath day. Jesus had come into that village, and he came to the synagogue where they were worshiping. And there's a man there who had a severe handicap. His life had been um, deeply diminished by the severe handicap of, of the time then. And uh, so Jesus then looks at him, and he's prepared to heal this man and change his whole life. But he turns first to the religious leaders and says, what should I do? Should I heal this man or not? It's a Sabbath. And these religious leaders so misunderstood the direction and the word in the heart of God. They said, don't you dare heal him on the Sabbath. And we don't care if you leave town tonight and you're gone. Don't you dare heal him on the Sabbath. And it says, Jesus experienced deep anger. So appropriately for, to, to see people whose hearts were so cold and so callous toward other human beings, toward their neighbors, who deeply needed the help that he could give them. He experienced anger. He experienced anguish. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 38 is one of those places. The setting is that very last night before the cross, and it says Jesus would experience such deep anguish because he would know within hours he'd be nailed to a cross, and he would take upon himself the horror of the sins of all humanity upon himself, and he experienced deep anguish. I mean, Jesus responded to the whole truth. Jesus, Jesus was and is someone who, who responds to the reality of your life 
But not just the reality of your life, but to the whole truth, the reality of his life and what he can bring and what he can do. He responds to all of that. And this is very important to understand. One can hold opposing emotions at the same time. One can hold opposing emotions at the same time. The first time I ever realized that, although I'm sure I had this happen for me many times, was at my mother's uh, death. Uh, the day before a funeral, we went to the funeral home, and uh, she and I had been very close, and she'd had profound impact upon my life, and I, I felt such deep grief, the, the sense of uh, her influence all of those years, and just the reality I would never see her this side of heaven again, and deep, deep grief. But before we left the funeral home, there was this uh, second emotion that began to also come into my reality. And it was based upon the reality, the truth, that my mother was in heaven and would be forever. The truth was and is that she was is in heaven. And there was this joy that began to live with that grief. And, and I was so aware I was living in looking at two truths. One is that she was dead, the other that she was alive forever in heaven, and experiencing at the same time the appropriate emotions, the one of grief and the one of deep joy at the very same time. Paul would speak of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He'd be talking about how hard life had been, how difficult it had been, at the same time talking about the power and the work of Jesus in the midst of that. And then so 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, he would say, our hearts ache, but we always have joy. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy, these simultaneous emotions. And so very clearly, Jesus often held opposing emotions at the same time. But I would declare to you that the emotion of joy never left for a moment. And this is why I would tell you that. And track with me, okay? Think with me on this. Would you say that every command in Scripture is intended to make us more like Jesus? Is that fair? Every command is intended to make us more like Jesus. Either stop doing something and then we'll become more like Jesus or start doing something, become more like him. And so we come across this command in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and it says very simply, always be joyful. Heck, it's a command, right? The command is always be joyful, which doesn't that then imply that that would make us more like Jesus? Why? Because he always was always is and always will be joyful, doesn't it? Doesn't two plus two equal four on that? So that entire run of three years, including that night when he would be arrested and next day crucified, he, while he had opposing emotions in those difficult times, the joy never left him. And you see it. John 15, 11. He's telling his disciples, it's a passage that I read, it's that very last night he's in the upper room. And you can see the joy is still there. He's saying, guys, I want to give you my joy. And I got so much right now. If you get it, it will spill out. You can't hold it all in, even right now in the midst of this. And yet an hour later, he's in Gethsemane. And, and you can see the other emotion that's there, this deep, deep anguish. And he's looking at two realities. Yes, he's looking at the cross. But he's also looking beyond the cross at the resurrection. And he's responding to the whole truth. So he's responding both at the same time with this anguish, but with this this undying joy in the midst of it. Jesus is, if, if you're not gripped by this, let us soak in. He is the one with more joy than any being who has ever lived. 
more joy-filled than any being who has ever lived. And he wants to give you his joy. He wants to give you his joy. And he says, if you get it, if you get it, there'll be so much you can't keep it in. It's going to flow out. It's going to spill out of you. Now, this is important to understand. We don't get joy with a, by having a laser light focus on joy. I, I can't look at my emotional world and say, get joyful. Okay, hadn't happened. Let me try again. Get joyful. Hadn't happened. Let me try again. You, you, can't, you can't have laser light focus on joy. You have to learn to have focus on living in a way that produces joy. Okay, the leadership people talk about, they're, they're these lead measures in life. If you do lead measures, then they'll produce a lag measure uh, that you want. So the lag measure is joy. We've got to learn how to live in a way that produces joy. I'll give you an analogy of this. It may make some sense. If you want to lose weight, it's important to have a scale. It's important to step on the scale. But if all your focus is stepping on the scale, you can step on a scale every morning for 40 days and be so frustrated because nothing changed. And so you might think, well, my problem is I'm not stepping on the scale enough. So I'll do it twice a day, and 40 days and twice a day, then you're really discouraged. Maybe if I do it three times a day, it won't work, will it? You're, you're focused on the, the lag measure. And, and so then someone tells you, well, let me tell you about these lead measures. If you learn to eat a diet that's healthy and you learn to exercise, if you focus on those things and step on the scale, see how you're doing, you'll find that you'll begin to lose weight then. And, and the scale just becomes this measurement. It becomes like this, this report card of, am I really doing the diet? Am I really doing the exercise? And if I really am and the scale's not changing, then I'm doing the wrong diet, the wrong exercise. And the scale is helpful, but it, it's just to, it's to make sure that, that you're actually living in a way that results in the loss of weight. And joy is the very same thing. It, to find the way to live that, we, that will result in joy being the outcome of that. So let me give you two things that lead to joy that come out of Jesus' life. And there's much more that could be said and taught, but these are very foundational, very fundamental. These two have deeply impacted my life and my level of joy. The first I would say is this, is, is living in a surrendered relationship with Jesus. Living in a surrendered relationship with with Jesus. And I'll give you a passage and then I'll explain what I mean by that. John 15, 9 through 11 is preceded by some verses and Jesus is talking about how crucial it is they have a relationship with him. He used this analogy. It's, it's a growing grapes and grapevine analogy about the vine and the branches. And for most of us, what would make more sense is, is a tree analogy of a tree trunk and tree branches. And so he would be saying to them, what's crucial guys to you is I am the tree trunk and you're a branch and you will thrive if you're attached to the trunk, but you'll die if you're not. He's saying relationship is crucial in this. And then verse nine, he says, I have loved you even as the father has loved me. Remain in my love. It's a relational command. Like remain in my love. Okay. Just as I obey my, okay. When, okay. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. He's saying, remain in this relationship, and you do it by obeying what I say, or you do it by being surrendered to my leadership. So he's saying the crucial thing is, is, is um, be deeply tied to me in relationship, which comes through trusting Jesus to forgive you and lead you. 
and then actually let him lead you. And it means, as he points out to me, he points out to you something that I'm doing or you're doing, and he says, don't, don't do this anymore. He would say that because whatever it is would be a sin. It would mean then finding the way to stop doing that because that would, because every sin eventually steals joy. Every sin eventually steals joy. And, and if he's pointing out something to you or me, uh, then it would be to be surrendered and actually make the change. Or maybe it's not to stop doing something. Maybe it's to start doing something. Uh, for example, um, our joy is so much affected by relationships. And in a few weeks, I'm going to teach about forgiveness. And Jesus commands his followers to forgive others. And I'll teach about how we do that, how it happens, what it looks like in a few weeks. But it's a command. And, and if I've not done that, then there will be a loss of joy in my life because the relationships are damaged and wounded. And he's saying, I'll help you fix that. Uh, here's the command. I'll show you how to forgive. And, and so, so it's not a case of stop doing. It's a case of start doing. Like start forgiving then. Okay? And, and so, so living in, in this surrendered relationship to follow everything he says, which means everything in Scripture is God's word. It means to follow everything in Scripture. It means when you're in, in Christian community, maybe in small groups, and there's wisdom that's given there that's, that's biblically-based wisdom to learn that and apply that. If there's biblical teaching being done, uh, such as a morning like this, then to apply that and do that as well. It's, it's to live in this surrendered relationship with him. Okay, so one of the things I check is, and, and I will stop and do an assessment of how much joy I have. I got, I got a scale. It's one to 10. And, and I kind of ask, where am I on this scale, really? And, and if it's down, one of the things I, I ask is, am I not surrendered in something Jesus has shown me? Is there something he said, stop doing? I haven't stopped. Is there something he says, do I haven't started? And, and many times that's the case. And, and the adjustment comes, and, and the lead measure is to do what he says, and, and joy will return, okay? That's the first one. Second one is this, is responding to all that is true. Responding not to part of what's true, responding to all that's true. Hebrews 12.2, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's speaking of, of that night and the following day when he would be crucified. And Jesus had the full picture in mind. He was responding to all truth. He, he saw the cross. His emotions were responding to that. The same time he saw the resurrection to come, his emotions were responding to that. And, and Because he, he knew. He knew what was coming. He, he knew the whole truth. He didn't just fixate on the cross which would have left him with no joy. He looked at the entire picture. I'll give you an, an analogy. I, I'm an Aggie. Last weekend, A&M was playing Tennessee. And so there are two top 10 teams playing as Aggie. I can't say that happened very often, but there were two top 10 teams playing. So it was a big game. Marie and I were in Dallas for a ministry event. I actually got to watch most of the game before the event happened. And so when we had to leave late in the game, A&M is up by two touchdowns. And so I left really happy. And somewhere into the evening, late in the evening, someone said, A&M won. And I said, sure, of course they did. And they said, they won in double overtime. And I thought, oh, got close. But they won. They won. So I just, you know, and I'm not, like, I'm not absurdly joyful now like I was a long time ago. But there was some joy from that. And so then we get back late at night to the hotel. And I turn on a sports channel. And I see some of the replay. 
And so after we left, Tennessee scored a touchdown and made it a, only a one-touchdown lead, but the game's nearly over. I think there's two minutes or less left, and this freshman running back for A&M breaks uh, free for what will be a 73-yard touchdown run. And I'm watching the run, and, and just at the two-yard line, this defender catches it from behind, punches the ball out before he crosses the goal line. The ball bounces into the end zone and out of the end zone, which means A&M didn't score the touchdown that would have sealed it. The other team would get the ball, and I'm going, oh, that's a bummer. But that's okay. I, I know the outcome. I, I know who wins. Big deal. <laughs> and so the other team gets the ball on the 20-yard line. There's very little time left. They're 80 yards away, and they drive down and score the tying touchdown. I'm going, bummer, but I know the end. No big deal. I haven't lost any joy over it. And then, lo and behold, the closing seconds, A&M gets the ball. They drive all the way down the field. They're going to kick this chip shot field goal to win it, and they blow the field goal. I think, bummer, but I know the end. I know we win. (laughs) Now, imagine if I had seen it live. Oh, man. I mean, different emotions going on then because, you know, the fumble and they score and we feel, oh, man. But, but I knew the whole truth. I knew how the game ended. And for every follower of Jesus, the end game is heaven. That's the end game. In Revelation 21, 4, this is what it says about heaven. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever, gone forever. And so when I'm pondering in the time we're in right now, I'm pondering the elections coming up, and I'm thinking, wow, how did we get here as a country with elections coming up? And, and, and there's an emotion attached to that. I'm thinking, man, our country isn't as healthy as it needs to be, and we need to be light in darkness. But there's a part of me that goes, but I know the end game. I, I, whatever happens to this country, I know how it all ends. I, Jesus wins, and by his grace, I'm with him. I know that. I, I look at the racial strife that's going on now, and I think, golly, it seems it hasn't changed from the way it was when I was a kid. And there's this deep sadness And we should be light in darkness to change that. But I don't know where it's going to go. But I do know this. I do know the end game. I know how it ends. I know Jesus wins. And by his grace, I'm with him. I look at the moral decline in our country. And it breaks my heart. The deep emotions. And we must be light in darkness to try to turn that around. But I don't know where it will go. But I do know how it ends. I know Jesus wins. And merely by his grace, I'm with him. On a personal level, if you or I were to lose a job, there would be very clear emotions about that. Maybe uh, self-esteem issues around that. Maybe worry, maybe fear and concern and all that. But, and, and maybe the, certainly the lack of knowledge of, of what will come. In fact, after the first service, a man came down and said, would you pray for me? I just lost my job. And what I could say to him is, if you're a follower of Jesus... You and I, we don't know what's going to happen with the job, but we do know this. We know he he said he'll be with you. He will provide. He will guide now and the here and now. And and then we know how the game ends. In In the end, he wins, and by his grace, you're with him. Maybe it's not loss of a job. Maybe it's loss of a significant relationship, and it's devastating to you. And maybe it's lost forever, or maybe there's a question mark about that. And and but you do know this. 
In the here and now, he's promised he will be with you and he will comfort you and he will strengthen you and he will guide you and, and he will somehow fill the gaps for you. And in the end, he wins. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're with him. Maybe it's not loss of relationship. Maybe it's loss of health or maybe it's pending loss of your life or maybe it's the actual loss of the life of someone that you love. And his promise is if you're a follower of Jesus in the here and now, he's with you now. He'll walk with you through it now. And, and in the end, in the end, he's promised he wins. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you're with him. You know that, you know that, you know that. He's, and he's saying to you and me, he's saying, I, I have more joy than any being who's ever existed. And I long for you to know that, and I long to pour that into you. And two of the key ways are these, you know, living this surrendered relationship and making sure that we're responding to all that is true. So many times when I'm doing my, I'm stepping on the scales and doing my joy check and, and joy seems to dissipate. So many times for me, I have focused on the problem. All of the truth I'm looking at is some problem, some dilemma, some issue, and I'm not looking at the whole truth. And when I pull back and look at the whole truth, that begins to change. Because always, and if you're a follower of Jesus, then you can know this. No matter how bad that circumstance is, there's more to the story. And the more, the more is very, very good. The more, which is Jesus, produces joy. So I would challenge you to ponder in, in a moment I'll pray and Ponder where you're at on this. Um, have you trusted Jesus? Do you have a relationship? Have you asked him to forgive you and asked him to lead you? That's what surrender means, ask him to lead your life. And, and if not, you could do that today. I mean, you could whisper this authentic prayer today. Do you know him? And have you, have you missed the boat on joy? First of all, do you even know has it ever dawned on you? He has more joy than anyone who has ever existed. And he longs to pour it into you. And if you know that, and, but you're not experiencing it, is one of these two things a key here? To do this check and ask him, am I really, am I living in this fully surrendered relationship? Is there something I, he wants me to change, to stop or to start? Or am I looking at all that's true? Or am I just fixed on, fixated on the problem today? Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, he would say, we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Colossians chapter 3 says, fix your eyes on heaven. You're struggling? Fix your eyes on heaven. Dana taught again last week about Jesus is the one who's always present. He's the, he's the one you want at the party. There's something about joy that is so attractive and so magnetic about it. He's the most joy-filled one. Ponder that. Think about that. Jesus is also, we've talked in this series, the one who's always righteous, uh, infinite love, all power, all knowledge, all wisdom, all grace, all those things. 
I found myself this week, though, thinking about the joy aspect. And it's caused me to worship him. It's just caused me to worship him. And, and after I pray, the band's going to come up as I pray. And they'll lead us in a song. And I would encourage you to engage in the song at whatever level you're at. And you might decide just to, to take in the words and see if you can worship. Or you may decide to belt this declaration out because of who he is and because of who you are in him. Father in heaven, I pray this will soak in even now. The truth, your son Jesus, stunning joy, immeasurable joy, indestructible joy in him. And it will soak in that he wants us to to have his joy. He wants every one of us to. Father, I know there's some in this room that have never begun a surrendered life have never begun a relationship with Jesus. And they can now with a, a genuine and authentic prayer that says, Jesus, please forgive me. I need your forgiveness. Please lead me. I surrender to you. Father, may every Christ follower here in this room, uh, may we take great hope. And may we take the learnings that apply to each one of us and may we apply them well in the days ahead. And now, Father, may we worship you and your son, Jesus. Amen.